and welcome to episode 77 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. What's up, Stan? How's your, how's your week, your weekend? I had a nice weekend, quite relaxing. I saw some friends for the first time in months and months and months oh yeah yeah Sweet. yeah that was cool we did a social distance hang in the park six feet apart kept wearing masks but we kicked a, a ball also returning this week from his sojourn to the sunshine state it's the godfather dave harbarger i was not in the sunshine state i i did however just drive nine hours from an undisclosed location to come here get out of my car find out that my air conditioner is broke again and do this podcast so let's Roll that beautiful bean footage, you know what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a little uh, little warm in Casa de Harbarger? It literally broke 20 minutes after we walked in the house. That sounds miserable. So like you, t- you turned it on and it was like... Wah. No, the house was already cold, fortunately. It's just, it's just, it broke. And then the AC guy has already been here, so it's going to get fixed, but uh, we'll be okay. But Slimer has already escaped the containment unit, <clears throat> so... Yeah, exactly. Walter Peck came and made me shut down the containment grid. On this week's episode, we're doing an extended breakdown as we check in on our favorite formats to see how last week's change to the companion mechanic impacted the Magic Online metagames for Modern and Pioneer. Then we start diving into some of the new cards spoiled for Core Set 2021, which comes out a full year early. That's nice of them. Later this summer. They've already spoiled a really interesting card. And I gotta ask, does this seven mana Ujin, the spirit dragon, have what it takes to see modern play? It might sniff Pioneer. Might sniff Pioneer. I will say, uh, I don't know if the seven mana one is good enough, but the eight mana one that's been in print for a while is is pretty good and playable in, in modern and pioneer. And Stan, I think I think it's Eugene. Oh. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a tricky card. Hard hard to read the mana cost, and we don't have a pronunciation guide. But first, everyone's favorite part of the show, housekeeping. Hello to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Thanks this week go to Stoneway, Jeff H, and Zachary R. Also, shout out to some new reviews from Mezzanon and PS player 69420. Yeah, I don't know what those numbers have to do with anything. Maybe they're just like looking forward to the distant future, like the year of 69,420. Hopefully all of our own like helicopters and such. I think that might be Trevor Bauer, formerly of the Indians who donate, <laughs> who, who left that review. Well, thank you, Peace Slayer 69420. We'll be looking forward to that time as well. So yes, thanks again to those new citizens of the Dive Down Nation. You can become a citizen of the nation by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the dive down. You can look at different tiers that you can join at as little a dollar an episode gets you access to the super secret Slack server. You can go up from there. Uh, one of the coolest benefits I've been forgetting to mention, I think, is we, we started this a few months ago. And at $3, you get access to our show notes. When the episodes get released, you can get a peek behind the scenes and uh, kind of the, the, the words we type as we craft these episodes. 
Yeah, we put a lot of work into these show notes and we're now being solicited by websites across the internet asking us to publish these show notes as content on their websites. And we say no. At least at least not yet. <laughs> but, um, and at $5 an episode, you get the episode as soon as our editor is done with it. And that can be anywhere from 24, sometimes 48 hours early. Um, and you just get it as soon as it's done. We don't even listen to it. We just drop it onto the Patreon. You get it as soon as we do. And that's a, a nice perk for people at the $5 and up level. But again, if you want to support us, uh, give us some of your hard-earned cash for the effort we put into this, you can go to patreon.com slash the dive down. And if you'd like to support the dive down while you play magic, you can check us out at manatraders.com. Uh, Manatraders is the rental service that the three of us use for renting our decks in Pioneer and Modern on Magic Online. And uh, we, we love them, longtime users. Uh, they have some interesting things coming up, free tournaments, all kinds of different things. They're overhauling uh, and rolling out some testing of a mana hourless rental system that I don't know the full dynamics of quite yet. But uh, keep an eye on Mana Traders. They are doing a whole bunch of cool stuff these days. And if you'd like to support us when you uh, sign up for them, you can use code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of rentals. Manatraders.com. Thanks, Dave. So in this week's breakdown, we're going to take our first look at the post-companion nerf metagame for Modern and Pioneer and see what's changed, what's stayed the same, Keep our eyes on anything new that's popped up, perhaps. But first, there are some quick news items, I guess one in particular. And though it relates to formats we don't usually cover, it does relate to a big popular tournament organizer that we often pay close attention to. So yes, Star City Games announced today that they have created an arena-based tournament series and it's all in standard and historic. So we'll just briefly talk about this because it's cool, it's new, it kind of, it has some waves, I think, that are going to eventually impact our formats, perhaps. So this tournament, you can find it at scgtouronline.starcitygames.com. It's going to take place via Magic Arena and via the MTG Melee website. And so... Arena? Yeah, exactly. No magic online, all magic arena. And I guess my initial take is that they want it to be more broadcasting friendly. Like arena is just a little bit smoother, a little bit faster, maybe a little bit easier to follow, uh, more familiar with probably a wider player base. So that unfortunately right now restricts it to standard and historic with the hopeful eventual promise of pioneer hitting arena one of these years. So the way this is working is there are challenges, championship qualifiers, and a seasonal championship. And so much like other tournament series, the challenges are four round Swiss events. You drop 20 bucks. It's like doing a, a league sort of thing, and you can earn points and store credit towards SCG. With that, uh, once you have 10 points, that allows you to enter a 10K prize pool championship qualifier that also awards more points as well as real dollaroos. 
And then if you have 100 points, I think you can earn them in any fashion during the season, uh, whether that would just be a bunch of challenges or with the championship qualifiers. That gets you into the 25K prize pool seasonal championship. The challenges right now are a mix of standard and, and historic, and the qualifiers and the championship, I guess, this season, which looks like it goes through end of July-ish, um, are all standard. So that's cool. Give us Pioneer. Watsy, give us some Pioneer to play on Magic Arena. This does make me think a little bit about one of the topics we discussed last week, which is the digital platforms give players new ways to engage with the game, including these high-level competitive events that, you know, if you're on the West Coast and you've never had the chance to play in a Star City Games event, like, this could be your chance to get your foot in the door with that organization, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I'm glad to see Star City do this. I mean, Channel Fireball has been doing you know, some online GPs already. Um, and so I guess they just kind of felt like they had to do it to keep up, especially once it was announced last week or so, uh, maybe two weeks ago now that uh, GPs are canceled for the rest of the year and that they feel like it'll be a lucky thing if they have them next year, even. So I think Star City is just trying to stay relevant. Uh, hopefully we do get Pioneer on arena at some point but i'm starting to be a little more suspicious of that idea as time goes on uh but we'll see right right on i agree hopefully one of these years <laughs> i just want to i just want to sink some free currency into some pioneer packs like they did with historic let me have that opportunity watsy stan you're still off of arena right uh yeah yeah me too i have not opened the program in i don't know eight months 10 yeah. months been so. a very very long time there was one point where mtgo was doing maintenance so i fired up arena thinking maybe i'll do a draft and i don't think i even finished the draft i was just like whatever i'm gonna do anything else with my time I, I will say you know if you like limited they do have the in pod person drafts now and i know that many of our citizens in the slack have enjoyed historic i i, I do want to dip my toe into historic when i have a little bit of time to look at the format I think it has some interesting stuff going on. So especially with uh, Winota getting banned, kind of emergency banned today yeah. on the day of recording. So they definitely are tweaking it on the fly. Yeah. It's a whole community of people in our Slack to learn about Historic from that I should tap into. And I will at some point. But Stan, on the topic of formats we do cover, tell me about Pioneer, my friend. Oh, I'm happy to. Because we have a lot of Pioneer data to dissect today, as well as a lot of modern data. So what we decided to do for the breakdown this week, on account of the recent change to the companion mechanic, is look at all of the Magic Online events that have been published since the companion errata has gone into effect. And specifically, we have three MTGO preliminary tournaments, one Pioneer and Modern Challenge, and one format showcase. Right. So five tournaments, kind of, which is, you know, we've only had we've only had a few, really only had four or five days of data to gather at this point at record time, but there's definitely been some trends that we can see already emerging. And so, Stan, why don't you give us that top down on the Pioneer metagame? Yeah, and one thing to note real quick, what we did not look at for this portion of the episode are decks from the leagues because the leagues that have been published last week even the ones that were published as late as friday in the case of modern still included decks from before the 
companion errata. So the data wasn't super clear, and this gave us like a nice, really simple and cohesive way to spread the data evenly across both formats. And also, these are these are all frequency based ones, right? So if we if there's a whole bunch of one deck, we get to see it in prelims, challenges, and showcase, whereas leagues we don't get to. So yeah, it's a good point. So as we said, five events, and across all five events in Pioneer, there were 23 different decks that appeared. And we have some charts and graphs. I made some pivot tables to break down the frequency with which these decks appeared. And in the Pioneer meta, we have a single most popular deck with more than 25% of the representation of from these five tournaments, and that's this little strategy that could called Demir Inverter with 29.2% of the metagame post-companion errata. Wow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that low before the companion errata, right? Like it was starting to be towards the top of the metagame again right before the companion rules changed. I feel like it was in the 10 to 15% range, right? Probably. Yeah, it's it was it's been it's been making a comeback for sure. I think I think it was stronger after people stopped experimenting with Yorian and it's it's showing itself to be the the tier 0 of the format, I think. Mm-hmm. So this next point of data I actually find a little bit more troubling, which is that three decks make up about 50% of the Pioneer metagame from this weekend. Mm. Oh, that's bad. In second place after Inverter was Lotus Breach with 12.4% followed by Jeskai Fires with just about 9%. So those three decks account for about half of my pie chart. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 not great. That's not kind of a that's not the look you want, I think, to have a format that top heavy. It's interesting that Lotus Breach is kind of shot back up to deck number 2. Um you know, Everett, when he was on a couple of weeks ago had said that he thought that that was the best deck in any format on in the hands of a good pilot and um there it is, back at second in the meta meta share. Yeah, Jeskai Fires. We'll, we'll go into some actual tournament results in a second, but the Jeskai Fires decks from the weekend, for the most part, they were all Yorion decks. So that was like one deck that basically didn't change at all, and maybe to be expected. Yeah, seems like you know. I'm sure you guys talked about this last week, but Yorion fits fine with a Fires deck, right? You got to spend your man on something. It's not going to matter. <laughs> And there were two other decks that had over 5% of the representation. In fourth place, Mono Black Aggro with 7% of the meta. Back from the dead. Much like the deck's creatures. It's called a setup, Shane. Yeah, that's why I, I executed on it. You, 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 know, you threw me that softball. I, I bunted it over to third. Perfect. Stan scored. It was a squeeze play. <laughs> runner, runner. Followed by, did I use that expression right? I think so. No, but that's cool. You guys remember, hey, guys, remember baseball, by the way? I'm just mad we're losing out on like one of Mike Trout's most, uh, you know, perfect years of being amazing at baseball. Yeah, well. As a quick aside, I'm a little happy that there has been no baseball yet because I now live in the neighborhood of Wrigley Field. And whenever we have home games, the Cubs fans, oh, do they get rowdy? They do. I used to live a block away from Wrigley Field, and one time I caught a guy peeing in my front lawn. And I was like, dude, come on. Sammy Sosa? <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. It was Sosa. It was weird. Post-retirement? All right, the last deck with more than 5% of the metagame from the weekend was Boros Burn. Also 
a lot of the Burroughs Burn decks from Pioneer still played Luris. That that one's a little bit of a surprise to me. Not to me. You're just like it's it's eventually when you run out of gas, you can you'll find room to cast your your three mana to get Luris in hand. To cast your six yeah, your new newly six mana Luris. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely extra extra turns in a deck like that, and you want whatever you can to keep from running out of gas. So I, I there doesn't seem like any disincentive. Yeah, some of the other decks that we saw were things like Pant Spirits, Boros Feather, Five Color Niv, Chonky Red, Green Black Stompy. So some old friends, we'll, we'll get into those in a second. At this point, I do want to talk about some of the top eights we have from the weekend's events. As you know, preliminaries, they don't have a top eight structure. They post decks that went 5-0, 4-1, or 3-2. But we do have top eights for the Pioneer Challenge and the Pioneer Showcase. So starting with the Pioneer Challenge, the top eight. First place, Demir Inverter. Second place, Chonky Red. Our friend Torbrin is back. Torbrin was in it, but oh, oh, the mighty Obush was not to be seen. <laughs> I did not see Obush. Okay. What about Obash? Oh, he was there. Just kidding. He was not. I did I did get a reference though, Dave. I got it. In third place, Esper Control. So this was a Yorion deck that, while it was splashing black, it did not have demonic pacts. Hmm which is something that we were seeing in some of the Black X Yorion strategies. Fourth place, Mono Black Aggro. Fifth place, Demir Inverter. Sixth place, Boros Feather, still featuring Luris. And this was one of the Luris strategies before the Companion Errata. Seventh place, Demir Inverter. And eighth place, Blue White Control featuring Yorion. So we got three Inverter. We got two control decks, one, both blue, blue white based control decks. Uh, one has splashing black. And then we got one, two aggro decks and a mid rangey red deck. Yeah. It, and really, I think what stood out to me here was chonky red and mono black aggro were two of the decks that we sort of lamented as being vacant from the format while companions were, were ruling the roost. And it is pretty fascinating to see how quickly some of these strategies can be viable and competitive again with just this one rule errata. Shane, are you happy to see Mono Black back? Yeah, Mono Black is, it's cool to see. I think we haven't really seen what Mono Black can do with its new piece of removal in a Heartless Act. That's that's what it's called, right? Heartless Act? It yeah. is. Good piece of removal um, added to the removal suite of Mono Black Aggro. You know, it never really had that really great removal piece outside of fatal push. And so adding heartless act, I think opens up a few more options for hard to remove creatures in the deck. You know, you're no longer deciding, do I play cast down? Well, wasn't it just running murderous rider as those extra removal spells? I mean, it certainly does help, but there was always a few pieces. Like, am I going to play grasp of darkness? Am I going to play uh cast down? So I think that heartless act is, based on the stats, when we looked at all the creatures that it takes care of in the format, I, I actually didn't look at these lists, but here's hoping. I didn't look at the, the mono black list. I looked at another list we're going to talk about in the next top eight very closely. All right, well, maybe, maybe it had Heartless Act in it. We'll see. Maybe it leveraged a good card. Maybe it leveraged a good card that might not be around forever as well. Maybe that's a card that's out, outclassed in M21. Let's, let's call that a tease and move on. All right, the next top eight was the Pioneer Showcase, which happened on Sunday. 
And I actually found this top eight a little more fascinating, and I think you'll hear why. In first place, Bant Spirits, another deck that was pretty much gone for the last month. Yeah, Bant Spirits, if you listen to the Bant Spirits lovers out there, has what they say is a good matchup against Inverter and Mono White. And we didn't see a lot of Mono White show up. That's kind of a natural foil for the Demir Inverter deck. So I think if we're going to see Mono White pick back up to try to take down Blue Black Inverter, then I think we're going to be in a situation where good Band Spirits pilots are going to have fun out there. Second place, Demir Inverter. Third place, Model Black Aggro. Fourth place, Naya Winoda. We'll talk about that deck in a minute because it's wild. Fifth place, Demir Inverter. Sixth place, Lotus Breach. First Lotus Breach among the top eights that uh, we're looking at, even though it was the second most popular deck from the last week or so. Seventh place, Mono Green Walkers. Shane just walked away in excitement. And eighth place, Chonky Red. Again, two top eights for Chonky Red. That's kind of amazing. That is amazing because it was not exactly overly powerful and super widely played even before the world of companions we lived in for a while. I do want to talk about two things, okay? One, one of the mono black decks was a vampire deck, and the other mono black deck was kind of our tried and true mono black deck, and yes, they were both running Heartless Act. Which was the vampire one from the showcase or the challenge? That was from the showcase, and that's by, that's uh, piloted by Budikov. You may have heard of him. Mm. Okay. Haven't heard that name too much lately, but that's awesome. Yeah, also the seventh place Monogreen Walkers deck running the new Vivian, which was one of the cards that we pointed out as a potential pick-to-click when we did our Elop spoilers with Aspiring Spike. Yeah, I'm loving this, this Monogreen Walkers deck. Um, Stanerson got seventh place with this deck. It's it's moderately changed from, um, with Vivian's monsters, Vivian monsters advocate, rather. I, I love this deck archetype. And so I want I, I looked at it pretty closely. One of the things I thought were interesting is there's no burning tree emissary, single main deck scoos, single main deck questing beast, and two uh, voyaging satyrs still remain. Um, they're doing, they're still running 12 walkers, but you know, this player Stanerson, they're running three Vivian's monsters advocate, three Nissa who shakes the world, two Vivian Arcbow Ranger, and still four Karn the Great Creator, of course, because it's so important to the strategy. There's no Ulamog in the sideboard now for uh, for, four mana Vivian to get. And I thought that was a novel exclusion. Sometimes Ulamog is, is just so good to tutor up when you get Vivian Arcbow Ranger into that situation where you can just get that Ulamog out of the board and take things over. I like the main deck questing beast quite a bit because with monsters advocate out, you can cast something like a six mana walking ballista or six CMC walking ballista five CMC uh, Hydra. Then you can get that questing beast for free off of the monster minus. And then you have a hasty hard to block, you know, planeswalker killer in your questing beast. And that's certainly uh, an added advantage there. I think that's a nice one of, I think, cause you can just sort of tutor it up when you get into that situation. And it's a, probably a perfectly fine card to play ahead of curve. 
So in looking at all of these results from the weekend, I wanted to take a, a, a quick look at where the companions are now. We mentioned some of them, but this next section is called the companion check-in. And I got to say, I only saw two companion creatures types across all of these results. And it was just Yurion and just Luris. Yurion still pretty much in all of the fires decks. And really, those fires decks just kind of looked stock even after the errata, practically no changes week over week. But it was also in some control strategies. We saw it in regular old blue-white control and that Esper list. I'll talk about that Esper list in just a second. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that even though Jeskai Fires didn't change, it did not get a single top eight here. And as you mentioned earlier, Lotus Breach only got one when they were decks two and three in the little metagame breakdown that you did. So... Hmm. Hmm. Likewise, none of the inverter decks were running Yorion, as far as I can see. And that was maybe that was a, a progression that we were starting to witness toward the end of the companion metagame. But now it's really just like they've ditched it entirely back to 60 cards. Yeah. And the net of what you're saying here, Stan, is that the um, in those two top eights that we had, there were only three decks with companions at all. Right. So there was two control lists that had Yorian and one Boros feather list that had Luris in the sideboard and the other 13 decks did not. Right. So we had less than 25% of the decks in the top eights of these two particular tournaments had companions. Right. Luris did appear in some other decks though, throughout the top 32s and throughout the uh, preliminaries. It was in Boros burn here and there. It was still in SRAM auras which I actually think makes a lot of sense just because giving you the ability to buy back creatures that are really prone to getting two for one seems so important. Boros Feather still running Luris. And I think there was only one Jeskai and Soul deck still running Luris as well. And I think it kind of benefits the deck for the same reason that it benefits Ram Auras, just because, you know, sometimes if you're ensouling an artifact that dies to removal, being able to start to buy those back can be really important to close out games. Yeah, I mean, I think not too many surprises there for me, in a sense. I mean, we kind of all had agreed that Yorian and Luris were the best ones. And it turns out that those are the ones that are still worth putting in decks. And maybe what's happened is that those decks have just gotten less powerful. And so they're less frequent, but there's still some of them are still playable. Burn is still playable. SRAM is probably still playable. If you like those decks, you shouldn't be scared to sleeve them up, I don't think, unless you're someone who's like the spikiest of spikes who wants to be on top of the meta all the time. Which case, you're probably playing Inverter. Yeah, you may have never stopped playing Inverter, if that's you. There were a handful of what appeared to me to be new decks to Pioneer that really jumped out. I want to I wanna bring those up now. Esper Control. I loved that in Modern, but Pioneer does not have Esper Charm. What does it have? So this was a Yurion deck. It even had two Yurion in the main deck, which I thought was cool and something that I don't know why we had to wait for the companion errata to, to see that. But it was splashing black for Ashiok, Nightmare Muse, Thoughtseize, Thought Erasure, Fatal Push, Trial of Ambition, as well as a sideboard command, the Dreadhorde, which is a card I had to look up for black black sorcery. Choose any number of target creatures and or planeswalker cards in graveyards. 
Command the Dreadhorde deals damage to you equal to the total CMC of those cards. Put them onto the battlefield under your control. Yeah. It's a lot of mana. Yeah. I mean, cool card, though. I mean, it could definitely be something that gets massive card advantage uh, if you are not being pressured by your opponent. And so maybe it's some kind of mirror breaker or, you know, something where you get to steal a bunch of permanents from a mid-rangey deck. I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be good in the matchups where Supreme Verdict is really good. Where you're just repeatedly casting verdicts to kind of clear the board. Yeah, just as long as you're not getting burned, too. So, up next, this one I've never seen before. Shane, Dave, let me know if you have black white humans. And it appeared several times across these events. It was mostly a mono white beatdown deck, but it does splash black for General Kudro, Dire Tactics, as well as sideboard copies of Kite Sail Freebooter. And if you don't know Dire Tactics, that is an ELOB card, white and a black for an instant exile target creature. If you do not control a human, you lose life equal to that creature's toughness. Not really a problem for this deck. Um, And some spicy pieces here, Boros Elite, not a card I see often, Kithian Hero of Akros, Mardu Woe Reaper, and Venerated Loxodon. A constructed staple Mardu Woe Reaper. I was going to say, what is Mardu Woe Reaper? Which card is that? Yeah, I'm almost certain it's from Cons of Tarkir. Hey, thanks for that. Yeah, helping you out there. It's a one mana, two one. Ah. Costs a single white. Does it exile something from a graveyard just for kicks? I think it does. Yeah, whenever Mardu Woe Reaper or another warrior enters, you may exile a card. If you do gain a life. I remember that card a little bit from standard during that. All right. These humans decks appeared in the 17th place of the pioneer challenge on June 7th, as well as 22nd place of the pioneer showcase on the eighth. I do want to talk about dire tactics for a second before we get off this deck, because this is definitely a card that I took a long look at during the Elob spoiler episode as being a potential card because it is an instant exile a creature with no downside if you are a deck with a bunch of humans now it costs two yeah and the downside not that bad even you know you lose life equal to a creature's toughness yes absolutely it's kind of like a vendetta was the name of the card that did did that to you in the past so i i think it's cool that there's a deck that found a way to kind of you know, fit this inside a shell. It's definitely like one of those things you got to keep an eye on. And pioneer is efficient removal spells that have drawbacks are worth trying to like build around or jam, jam into your deck. And so just being like, I'm going to exile something here. It is. That's cool. All right. Let's talk about this weird Winota deck. Oh, will we, we will Naya Winota. What does Winota do again? Well, I have the text and I'll read that. It's too red-white for a legendary creature human warrior. With the text, whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. It gains indestructible until end of turn. Put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in a random order. And she's a 4-4. Okay. This is a card that I totally glossed over when uh, Elob first came out. And A, I've now lost to this deck and not in Pioneer. And B, you know, as I read this text, it's like this card is actually crazy because she triggers for every non-human that attacks. So if you have 
three goblins on the battlefield. That's three mm-hmm. Winota triggers. Yeah, and then it can be tokens. So mm-hmm. that, that works. Speaking of tokens, this deck uses a combination of non-human enablers to trigger Winota, as well as some human payoffs to get with your Winota. And the enablers here are Elvish Mystic, Gilded Goose, which help with ramp, but also you can swing with them, ultimately. At a certain point, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Take zero. You know, why not? Lanor Elves is in there as well. It's also got Goblin Instigator, which is one in a red for a 1-1 that makes a 1-1 Goblin when it enters. Goblin Rebel Master, Legion Warboss scampering scorcher m20 staple a card that i think is so insignificant i'm not going to read what it does but it does turn sideways it runs some selfish spirits which i thought was pretty clever as a way Mm -hmm. to give your creatures indestructible and voice of resurgence back from the dead resurged into this deck so those are the non-humans that can attack your payoffs are Angrath's Marauders, which is like a seven mana pirate that doubles all the damage that creatures deal. And Kenrith, the Returned King, that has a bunch of abilities on a 5-5. Five five. But he can give your creatures trample, and I think that's the most relevant ability on him. And then uh, it also features Eldritch Evolution to find your Winotas. Sounds good. It's a cool deck. Sounds like an egg. Sounds like a cool aggro go wide deck. I mean, here, here's the real surprise is that this deck is not running Agent of Treachery, which I think is the main payoff that people kind of associated with Winota, especially in the formats of Standard and Historic. You know, surprising that this deck did not port that in as well, but it's just a big attacking deck that tries to double down on everything with Angras Marauders, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, and, you know, if you get several Winota triggers off, like, one of your goblin token makers, or if you have, like, a bird and an elf out there to just, like, swing for the heck of it, you know, eventually you could just find a big board full of Marauders and a Kenrith, and that could be GG in a single swing. Yeah. I mean, Winota was so powerful that it had to be mostly emergency banned out of Historic. And... There is has got to be a, a deck in the Pioneer card pool user that uses this card that's going to be pretty darn good. So watch that space for sure. Yeah, this this card is ridiculous and broken in many formats. And here we go. Bring it into the eternal formats. Yeah, we might talk about Winota a bit more later. So we talked about some new decks. We touched on the decks that are back. Any last impressions of the Pioneer metagame before we move on to modern? let's let's see what happens the next week or two um i don't think we want to see inverter at 25 percent plus of the metagame we'll see if people watsi is the kind of company that says if the metagame can't respond to keep a deck down then they usually take some kind of action but they didn't before but we'll see what happens now yeah i feel like before heliod was able to kind of take care of it so Maybe that's what has to happen again. We also have, you know, Corset 2021 coming out a full year early. So who knows how that might impact the metagame. So glad they rushed it into market. (laughs) All right. Shall we jump over to the modern metagame? Please. Same thing. Three preliminaries, one challenge, one showcase. Except here we saw 35 different decks. Hey, that's 12 more decks. 
We also don't have three decks that account for 50% of the metagame. It's a, a bit more diverse. Most popular deck, to my surprise, Eldrazitron with 13.6% from the weekend. You're really surprised, huh? I feel like Eldrazitron was was a, a major meta player kind of going into the companion meta. I think people, and people were still uh, running that deck during the companion, the, the, the short companion era as well. I think it's just a deck people like. It's just like, it's giant mid-range, spaghetti monster mid-range. Yeah. And I think they like it because it's very good. So, and I'll say the reason I was kind of surprised is just because, like, this is a deck that I continue to overlook to my own, for my own foolishness. You know, like, I kind of just forget how, how powerful and resilient it is, regardless of the meta. But in second place, Bant Snow, 11%. And, you know, there are a couple times where we, we'll talk about Bant Snow and Bant Snowblade. And I just want to make it clear, whenever I refer to Snowblade, it actually does include the Stoneforge package. If I say Bant Snow, mm -hmm. it does not. Uh, third place in popularity was Devoted Devastation with 8.5%, followed by Ponza, 7.6%. Still hanging around. Still hanging around, largely just reverted back to the pre-Obosh version. We're playing Bloodbraid Elf and Chandra's again. And it's good. It's a little slower. I, I was playing this this weekend. And it can totally hang. It, it felt like it had a lot of game against the metagame in general. But, uh, you know, you just don't have those turn three, turn four Obosh kills anymore. But it's okay. With nearly 6% humans and dredge. So those are two decks we weren't seeing a lot of, you know, the last few weeks. And just put so many of these decks in the in the top you know, five or six here. Just, just show me those lists. Just keep parading them in front of my eyeballs. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like Neo in his computer in the mate, just watching that text stream on by. Running the simulation. What does that even mean? It means I want to see them. Oh, you're... I just want to look at them. I want, I want to, I want to. You're good with them. Yeah, I'm good. Just let me drink them up. These humans decks, they're all looking pretty similar. They're all running General Kudro now. Sometimes they would have Kessick Malcontents, but not always. I just to throw it out there, if we if we throw the cutoff line at five percent of the meta, there's actually three more decks that I think we could mention that are in that above five percent share, and that is Amulet Titan, Boros Burn, and Storm as well. The good decks. Yeah. And I'm not surprised to see Storm or Burn here. I was sort of expecting Burn to be really popular in an unknown meta. Just go fast. Storm for the same reason. But I have a feeling that Eldrazi Tron does a pretty good job of beating up on both of these thanks to main deck Chalice of the Void. Yeah, I mean, that could be part of the reason that we've seen a lot of Etron is that people are just still metagaming against Burn a little bit, you know, with the one, the Chalice, basically. But um, still a good deck. Yeah, and then some random other decks Neoform, Eroza, a word I hadn't said in a long time. Soul Herder, in fact, even Saltai Reclamation all made appearances uh, since the companion Irata. Moving on to the top eights, starting with the modern challenge uh, from Sunday. First place was Bant Snowblade with real blades, but no Yorian. 60 card deck. Who knew? In second place, four color snow. Also no Yorian, but also no blades. So this is more of an Uro style build? Exactly, yeah. Uro, Ice Fang Coatles, a bunch of control spells. In third place, 
did not see this one coming. It's Bant Walls, <laughs> which is a Yorion deck, and it's really a bunch of blinking cards. Lot, it's got eight walls, a lot of creatures with ETB effects. No Soul Herder, though. These blinking cards. I'll talk about this, this deck a little bit more in a bit. Fourth place, Humans. Fifth place, Blue Black Mill. No. <laughs> Whoa. What a time to be alive. Craig, was that you? I don't, I don't think it was Craig. I know Craig's username on MTGO, I want to say, and I, I didn't recognize it from this top eight. I think he would have yeah. told us. Sixth place, Boros Burn. Classic list. No Luris. Seventh place, Blue Red Control. No main deck Blood Moons, but in a lot of ways, it looked like a, a Blue Moon style deck featuring... Some main deck, Royal Scions, as well as Bone Crusher Giants, Brazen Borrowers, and Thing in the Ice. So there are a lot of closers here. Kind of a more tempo, almost aggro version of the blue-red control strategy. And then in eighth place was Ponza featuring Blood Moon over Magus of the Moon, as well as a couple Renin Six instead of uh, Bone Crusher Giants in that two-mana slot. Bone Crusher, you know, the stomp ability kind of filling in that, that two-mana space pretty diverse list for the modern challenge i gotta say like this is this looks like a fun format yeah i mean that list i mean that top eight in particular sure what about our showcase yeah what about our showcase first place bant snow 60 card version second place storm third place Eurosa. fourth place bant Snowblade. so far we have not mentioned any companion decks Fifth place, Neoform. Sixth place, Ponza. Regular old Ponza. No Red and Six. And Magus of the Moon. Seventh place, Dredge. Okay. And eighth place, this is a Urian deck, and it's Bant Soul Herder. Mm-hmm. I still think this is a pretty cool-looking format. I agree. I am <laughs> sad that Prowess is gone again. Where'd it go? Well... How's, uh, how's it not going under these control decks? I mean, maybe maybe next week it'll kind of end up there. But, um, you know, I, I would out of these kind of lists, I would choose to play Ponza, I guess, if I was to look at it. Um, seems seems I, I agree that this is a cool, interesting kind of top couple of top eights for sure. What are, what are, what's our top 32 companion metagame looking like? So there was a smattering of your index Bant Walls, which we mentioned Teamer Reclamation started to run Urian. Uh, I saw a Eurosa deck with it and this Soul Herder deck from the eighth place of the showcase. We also saw Luris make an appearance in a lot of the Devoted Devastation decks. Even though none of them made top eight, they were uh, pretty much everywhere and very popular. Um, there was some Luris in the occasional burn decks as well. And... Even though none of the Ponza decks we've mentioned so far had Obosh, there were two that did. One was the Ponza combo deck, which had uh, Luca and Planebound Accomplice to cheat in an Emrakul, as well as uh, just kind of a regular uh, aggro Obosh version. Love it. I think the, the one thing I would throw out quickly is I just did kind of like a quick count. And of all the decks that you evaluated, Stan, it looks like you had... 118 decks on your spreadsheet and by my count less than 15 had companions in the sideboard so that's pretty interesting to see it go from being 
you know, 70% of the meta to 10% of the meta, maybe just like that. It's a huge drop off. Yeah, It's a huge drop. And so it feels a little bit like they got worse in, they got even worse in modern than they did in pioneer, probably because mana efficiency is so much more important than modern than it is. I mean, it is in pioneer too, but maybe there's still a little bit more time for them in, um, in pioneer. And there isn't in modern specifically kind of looking at Luris here, like Luris seemed to appear in more aggro decks in uh, pioneer. And it's not really appearing in, in all of the aggro decks or as many as the, of the ones in modern as maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, super interesting just to note bauble plus Uris was not enough uh, not enough pressure to run that combo anymore. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think I saw some bobbles in the Devoted Devastation list, for example, but you're right that, like, I don't think the burn deck was doing bobble anymore. Interesting. I don't think. So I want to run through new decks really quick as just some spicy things that jumped out to me. Winota. She's here, too. Um, although a very different creature package, probably not surprising because of modern creature suites here we had arbor elf no utopias paul birds of paradise eternal witness magis of the moon seasoned pyromancer which i heard lawson zandy from the dive down nation say is actually the best card in the modern winona deck Mm -hmm. which i find interesting just like you get it for free and just keep drawing cards strangle root geist even smuggler's copter a card banned in pioneer yeah, Winona, keep an eye on it. I mean, good cards are going to find ways to be good at four, four CMC. It's got a good enough payoff if you set it up right. Yeah. There was a blue-black inverter deck in Modern. So good in Pio, it, it appeared here too. It only went 3-2 in one of the prelims, but who knows? It seems way too slow to me, but maybe maybe people will tune it out. I mentioned Bent Walls. Uh, I thought this was cool because so it had Arcades, the that that dragon from the core set from last year, but also Knight of the Reliquary, which is a de- a card that's so strong in Legacy. Uh, doesn't see a lot of play in Modern, but it did appear here. Yeah, it definitely used to see play in Modern, uh, and is good when those kind of Coral Helm uh, combo decks as well. But uh, Knight's just a card that's been outclassed over the years. But cool card. Last deck I want to point out, Shane. This is for you. Abzan Stoneblade 2017 called and they have their siege rhinos for you. I I can't I cannot believe these cards. Lingering Souls 4. Is that is that is that even I thought I thought that just got like deleted from everyone's collective memories. Somehow that's the card off of this list that you pick as being suspect for modern power level. Let's talk about Siege Rhino. Yeah, this deck had four Rhino, four Voice of Resurgence, four Stoneforge four lingering souls and then you know black and white control cards i mean you can put a sword on a spirit token that's not bad yeah and then in terms of returning decks like people were saying they recognize modern again it felt like the floodgates just opened a lot of familiar favorites made their appearance again except bant spirits like is that just dead and modern is humans just better again certainly seems like it's possible any closing takes before we uh wind out of the breakdown Devoted Devastation, third place in our early post-companion metagame pie chart. I'm kind of surprised. Um, we'll see if it sticks around. It's, I mean, it's 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 always one of those powerful strategies that feels like people can 
hate it out of the format if they really want to, but more tools keep getting added to it. People get to be, they refine it. You said that, you know, Luris is still showing up. That's a powerful piece of recursion tech there. There's so many pieces you want to be removing on the battlefield that eventually you can hopefully run them out, stick that Luris, get what you need back. Hard to keep up with that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely looking like, uh, Uro is a big pillar of the modern format again after these changes, whether it's in, uh, you know, any number of color of snow control, Eurosa, it looks like there's a, a lot going on with that card again, which is kind of where we were before companions. I mean, I will say it's interesting to see not too many, uh, Ikoria cards making an impact here other than Winota seems to be the new one on, on tap to do some cool stuff. Yeah. I was also kind of surprised that Titan appeared to take a hit. Um, you know, that was a deck that was good despite companions. I think it would still be good. And even though it was represented, wasn't any of the top eights we pointed out and kind of seems to be like on the back burner a bit. Yeah, I suspect we'll see a pretty dynamic metagame out of the top 10 or so decks. I wouldn't be surprised if this pie chart is in all kinds of different uh, segments next week or the week after when we, when we continue to look at how things are changing. All right. So what's your overall take on companions being errated? Gut check. Turns out making cards cost three extra mana makes them borderline unplayable in modern in particular. I'm concerned about pioneer. Uh, I think if, if Yorian Yorian sort of becomes like a, a, a tool that makes control decks hang in modern, not that they were having too much of a problem, but if it, if it makes them a larger part of the tier one, tier two meta, I'm sure control players will be happy in modern at least. And I do have some concern about the current health of, of pioneer, but we'll see if, if people in the meta can respond to uh, inverter. I just don't want to see like this inverter mono white dance back and forth again. It, it gets get kind of dull and I think people get sick of it pretty quickly. Having to deal with the presence of inverter seems to invalidate a, a lot of strategies and just be an unfun thing to play against for many players. Yeah. I mean, my main takeaway is that it, it worked. I think, you know, it, the companions were over half of the metagame. Now they're between 10 and 20% of the metagame and Maybe that's an acceptable level for people. I, th I think it probably is. It's not too much, not too little. The good ones are good. The average ones aren't getting played and we move on. You know, they're probably going to become niche strategies that some people love and that'll be what they are going forward. I have a question for you guys. We don't often answer this question I'm about to ask, but I'm going to surprise you with it anyway. So now that we've done a little bit of research on how the metagames are shaking out post errata. And I know the three of us are shameless net deckers. What would you play in either format this week and maybe this weekend? Mono green walkers and pioneer because I, I miss it. And probably humans because I know it pretty well. And I think that uh, it has game against many other strategies. I think I would be playing Jeskai fires in pioneer still because I think that's pretty good. Uh, I might go in for chonky red just cause I have some experience with that, but, uh, I'd be playing Ponza too in modern right now just for, for fun. Yeah. Same here. Not only cause it's fun, but I think it's still solid, um, can steal a lot of games. And then in pioneer, I don't know, like 
the fact that in Seoul was unpopular, got popular again, now unpopular, it's like, I can't handle this up and down, but I think Bant Spirits is kind of just poised to get really good in that format again. So that that's a deck that I think I would try if I wanted to play a, a more aggressive slash tempo strategy. Love it. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to start looking at Core 2021 Spoilers, Volume 1. Stay with us. All right, core sets. What are ostensibly sets tuned for newer players? This this really seems to be where Watsy doesn't really have to focus on a single plane and can kind of do whatever they want. And that can be really cool. So along with like these the, the powerful pack moving cards we've come to expect from wizards we almost always see cool reprints interesting role players as well like look back on corset 2020 we got cards like soren imperious bloodlord vivian orcbow ranger agent of treachery veil of summer lotus field rotting regisaur voracious hydra knight of the ebon legion golos leyland of abundance and mystic forge among others we got reprints like many of our important ley lines, Field of the Dead, Graph Digger's Cage. Field of the Dead's not a reprint. Yeah, that was that was totally a reprint, wasn't it? No, I was thinking I was thinking of um, what's the land destruction land? Field of Ruin. Field of Ruin. Yeah, Field of the Dead, not a reprint, busted card. Yeah, there were a bunch of busted cards in M twenty. You you are right. Yeah, M twenty was huge, and and based on our first salvo of spoilers that we have seen, uh, started late last week, and unfortunately, we uh, you're going to have a few days between now when we're recording and when you get the episode. We're going to have a similar impact in Core twenty one uh, to our favorite formats of Modern and Pioneer. Wow, called shot. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, I said similar. I didn't say as much. I mean, M twenty was pretty bonkers. There's a lot of staples there. Yeah, and. You know, Watsi's promised to keep pushing the boundaries on power level, and I don't think there's a lot of reason to think that it's going to stop here with this set. So I think, like usual, we, we should approach this with our, our round table uh, technique, discuss some of the cards that have been spoiled so far, start with stuff that we think is likely going to see some play, end with maybe some quick takes about cards that are weird, cool, interesting in some fashion, some quick hits. Who wants to go first? Who's got something cool? Oh my God! There's a lot of cards on this list. Dave, we we got we got to start. I think with the marquee. Yeah. Here. Okay. Plunge. <laughs> <laughs> Quote unquote plunge because we don't know what the English name is yet. I think. No, I mean that that's a good spell. But I mean, who's the who's the face of Core Twenty One? Bainslayer Angel. So you guys want to start with? Yes. Because that's that's gonna that's gonna de- de- devote how much that's gonna de- impact how much time we have for the rest of the episode. Oh, Teferi, you're talking about Teferi, aren't you? Yes, Shane is talking about this is supposed to be a Teferi themed set or Teferi focused set. Everybody's flav- favorite planeswalker <laughs> to play with and against. Yeah, they're okay with the five mana version now. Uh, they hate the three mana version now. What you have is to join. T5 airy and T3 airy. Now we have Tifori. Uh, And so let's talk about it. Teferi, Master of Time. Master of Time! (laughs) That was, uh, you know, that was a sequel to that Dana Carvey movie. Surprisingly, it it didn't do that well. It went direct to video. Anyway, 
uh, two generic blue, blue legendary planeswalker Teferi. You may activate loyalty abilities of Teferi Master of Time on any player's turn anytime you could cast an instance. Hmm. Cool. Wow. Glad they keep doing static abilities on planeswalkers. I thought that was just a Ravnica thing. Uh, the abilities are plus one, draw a card, then discard a card. Minus three, target creature you don't control phases out. And then minus 10, take two extra turns after this one starting loyalty is three. Dave, phasing. Phasing. Many, many of, of our listeners probably have never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Tell us about phasing. Well, I'm going to get to phasing in a little bit. Fine. But it's a, it's a, uh, I'll tell you where it came from. So phasing originally appeared in Mirage Visions Weatherlight block back in 1996. Mirage has, is that the one with the little palm trees? It is the palm tree. And then Visions is the V. And then Weatherlight is the book. And these were the sets that I played when I was finishing up high school. A lot of powerful cards in there. Stan is Between dying. AP classes, Dave is shuffling. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, that is what my friends did. Yeah. How did I miss out? Man, being a grade behind you sucked. I didn't get to play any magic. You could have come out to the store anytime. Every Thursday night we were running tournaments. You know, you know how we did it at Compendium Collectibles. I was talking about like Final Fantasy VI with like the guy behind me in math class. I yeah. was playing Game Boy. Sure. Why not? Final Fantasy Adventure. That's All a right. Good one. This is a complicated planeswalker. I think we kind of just need to clarify, as as Shane alluded to with phasing, like how this card actually works. Yes, but the first thing I want to talk about when I talk about Teferi is not phasing. I want to talk about Teferi's static ability yeah. first. Because his static ability is, we've never seen this, right? We've never seen a Planeswalker that you could activate the abilities at instant speed and on your opponent's turn. Am I right? Or am I right? I concur. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of the ramifications of this, because they're kind of huge. And it's part of the reason that the card text itself on this card is a little confusing to look at, or a little bit underwhelming, I think, in some ways, because... The main thing here to to keep in mind is that doing this at instant speed means you can do it on your turn and your opponent's turn, which is why Teferi's plus one seems like it is not that good. Looting is kind of okay. Yeah, I mean, who wants their cards in the graveyard after all? Right. You know, who wants them in the graveyard? Who wants to cycle through cards that aren't very good right now and try to dig for what they're looking for? It's really probably pretty slow if you only get to do it once a turn, like on uh, the Royal Scions, for example. But when you can do it every turn, every single turn, your turn and your opponent's turn, and you get to a plus out of it, that's pretty good. And so I think that's the one thing to keep in mind is that you can do it on both sides of the game. The other thing to keep in mind is that the plus one and minus three are perfectly set up so that your sequence with Teferi is... Play it, plus one it, minus three it on your opponent's turn. Like that's that's what Teferi is kind of, I think, slotted to do in some ways. Right, because if you minus three the turn it comes down, he gone. Right. Yeah, he's only got three starting loyalty. You know, sometimes you might go plus plus on your turn, plus on your opponent's turn. But, you know, the I think part of the reason it was set at starting loyalty three is so you could do both of those abilities in the first cycle of turns. Yeah, and when you the the plus one being a loot is gonna march it towards that ultimate, 
much more quickly, right? So the 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 numbers that we assign to this planeswalker are going to have to be tweaked based on what he can do. Exactly. So let's talk about the actual abilities. All right, plus one to loot. How good is looting? Very. Stan? Extremely. Extremely? It's almost as good as drawing a card. I think it's close. I think that the couple of things to keep in mind is that a planeswalker with a loot ability as a plus one makes it a kind of a mediocre top deck. So late in the game, if you don't have cards in hand already and you play this card, you're going to feel kind of bad. I would say it's worse than just draw a card, but better than just scry. For sure. 100% there because scry doesn't actually get you a card. Yeah. And and what's good about, I think, this ability on the, on the plus, right, is we've all faced down Royal Scions and you're like, oh, they're looting. Cool. I mean, they're in, they're in loot, powerful car colors, but then all of a sudden they're like, they're threatening that ultimate. Yeah. And th- and this card is going to be able to threaten an ultimate twice as quickly. I mean, of course the ultimate costs differently, but it's going to be able to get to that ultimate in ways that, you know, you're going to be like, oh, oh man, this, this is eight. This stinks. Yeah. It takes four turns to get to the ultimate. Just keep in yeah. mind. You can do it on your opponent's turn in the fourth cycle. So I think that looting is a perfect ability for this card. If they were going to put a card that was able to activate twice in a turn cycle, I think looting is probably the right kind of power level for that. So great. Now let's talk about what everybody wanted to skip to. The second ability here is minus three to phase something out. And I'm going to read what this says Again, because the reminder text, I think, is helpful. Target creature you don't control phases out. Parentheses. Treat it and anything attached to it as though they don't exist until its controller's next turn. So you're sort of like covering it up with a piece of paper. Like, don't look under here. Yeah. I mean, people have been complaining about phasing being super difficult, right? And I think that it has some problems as far as like counterintuitiveness with the way that most of magic works. But that reminder text, I think, is pretty helpful. Treat it like it doesn't exist. Treat it and stuff that is attached to it like it doesn't exist. I think one of the important things to remember with phasing is that it doesn't trigger ETBs, right? The the permanent or creature in this case isn't leaving the battlefield and returning to the battlefield. It just disappears and then reappears. Yep. And that's huge. And there's a number of other kind of complications that come from the normal way that we think about these abilities, right? So a big one is, like Stan said, leave the battlefield and enter the battlefield abilities actually don't work because they do not, the creature does not leave or return to the battlefield. Another one that's that you would expect to be able to do with this is killing a token. You can't kill a token by phasing it. It just makes it not exist. So it's not the same thing as blinking it. It stays. Stanish shocked face. I don't play with a lot of face cards, so good to know. So other things to keep in mind, um, you cannot get rid of auras off of something because of this, because they stay on equipment stays on like all of those kind of things stay on there. Does it reset summoning sickness? No, it, you cannot phase something out and give it summoning sickness again because it never left the battlefield. You just treat it like it did not exist. And that's actually one of the big problems with this ability or one of the things that I think makes this ability a little less powerful than it looks like at first because you can't give something summoning sickness. So you really only get one attack off from whatever target you choose to hit with Teferi's minus three. So 
you have to phase stuff out on their turn. So in order for phasing to work with this card, they had to give it that instant speed ability because if you phase something out on your turn, it just phases back in on your opponent's turn and they still get to attack with it. So what's the point of that? There wasn't any point. So it stays away for one of your whole turns if you phase it out on your opponent's turn. So you get that cycle where like you get rid of one of their attackers, they don't have it back to block, and then on their turn, they get it back. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to figure out how to time wanting to do that. And I think, you know, my first read on this card is like, I'm not totally sure where it goes, but let's talk about that in a little bit because it feels to me like you need to benefit from the fact that their creature is not there to block in order to make that phasing ability really worthwhile for you. But we'll talk about that some more in a minute. On the ultimate, take two turns. You know, it's a little less win the gamey than some ultimates, right? Because you could draw a bunch of air on your two draws that you get from from taking two turns. Well, you've been filtering your hand for like four turns before that, though. Yeah, that's probably and control, true. And controlling the board enough to get it up to 10. To 10. So. I, I feel like it's likely not going to happen too too often. I think that this is a cool illusion in the same way that phasing is an illusion to an earlier era of magic. You know, this card, this ultimate refers to the card Time Stretch, which is fun. It was a card that was in Odyssey. I think it's in course at 10, like 10th edition. Um, I think you're going to, I don't know if you're going to get here super often, it shouldn't be too hard to get there because you can loot to it in three and a half turns. And a lot of those cards draw you gas to keep it on the board. So maybe you do get to threaten it, but it doesn't kill people as easily as like the Royal Science does where it does like eight damage to someone out of nowhere. What are we doing with this card? That's what that's kind of like where I sit when I look at it is I think this card is good and powerful. I'm not exactly sure where it goes. Like, I feel like it could slot into Azorius and Sultai controlish builds to build up card advantage and selection. Maybe you threaten ultimate against a deck that cannot interact with it, but it's super slow to threaten the ultimate. And so to me, I almost feel like I want it to be in sort of like a creaturey deck where I'm phasing out their stuff and drawing into my gas. And like, I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure where this card goes. I, I feel weird being the person evaluating this card because uh, I don't play decks like this very much. But I think I feel like I'd way rather play Teferi 3 for 3 mana than this for 4 mana. I feel like the you know, the impact on the game, the tempo swing that gets generated uh, immediately is is there with 3 over Teferi here. Yeah, I mean, the, at least the plus 1 does something. Frequently, the plus 1 on Teferi 3 doesn't really do that much. It kind of sets you up to do other things. And so you're deciding what to balance and draw a card and protecting it. Um, yeah, I think for me, one of the advantages of this Teferi 2 is that it's a single color. So it can go in more decks. You can put it in a Saltai deck instead. And so it might show up in places that you don't expect Teferi to be generally. I think this is just an obvious include in Pioneer Blue White Control. Three mana Teferi, four mana Teferi, five mana Teferi. Easy. Uh, especially because three mana Teferi protects this card. I think that's re a really important interaction because like this is really vulnerable to things like Fry, for example. Right. Um, I don't see this one going in a creature spell or into a creature deck personally. I, I think that's like, this doesn't look like a the type of Planeswalker that supports aggressive creature strategies. 
yeah, it's not it's not at the curve top where I want in spirits or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm I'm bouncing a single creature on the other side, or I'm phasing out a single creature on the other side. Like, is this worth four mana in something like let's say spirits or blue tempo flyers? I don't pro- probably not. Stan, what you said though, I, I have a little bit of a hard time sort of trying to evaluate. I don't think I don't think Tafori is like a card that stands on its own as something that you that you build around as the the centerpiece of your deck, right? I think you can do that with Teferi 3 and Teferi 5 in like an Azorius control shell because their impact on the game is so significant. And Teferi 5 just takes over the game when he sticks on the board. And Teferi 4 doesn't. You're, You're not really drawing cards. You're not really interacting with the board in really powerful ways. And so... What exactly are you doing with this besides sort of continuing to be annoying, right? You're like, well, here's my Teferi 3, here's my Teferi 4, here's my Teferi 5. Deal with this board state of insane uh, misery that I'm putting you under. Like, I'm eliminating the stack from play. I'm controlling you. I'm, I'm drawing cards that I, I... I'm drawing through cards. I'm getting rid of cards I don't want. I think you're underestimating how powerful that plus one on multiple turns is going to be especially if you can draw a card and answer a permanent before you have to even untap. I mean, so you're saying it's not really drawing cards. It is though. Like it's, but it, it, it not only is it drawing cards, but it's filling your graveyard for delve spells. I, I think this is going to be easier to slot into pioneer. I don't think it'll make the cut in modern because modern still has Jace. And I think I'd rather get a single brainstorm in than like possibly one or two loots. I'm fully prepared to be wrong because evaluating walkers for modern is very hard, but I I think this is like a shoe in for pioneer control. And I'd be surprised if it didn't make the cut. I think it could be in decks, many pioneer controlish decks there. It's just a possibility that in that deck, you may not have to phase stuff out very often. It might be like drop it and just plus one forever, you know, because you have removal already. So maybe it's all about dropping it plus one, phasing something out, untapping, and then Supreme Verdict, you know, so. All right. I mean, I think it's definitely a powerful card. I agree with Stan that I think it's more pioneer-ish than modern-ish. Can we talk about one more Planeswalker real quick as as, as long as we are on the Planeswalker kick? Please. I do want to mention this white one, Basri Ket. Uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about it for very long. It, it's it's pretty narrow, but I, I had a thought when I saw it. So Basri Ket, one white, white, legendary walker, Basri, from the plane of Amon Ket. He has a plus one that's put a 1-1 one, one counter on up to one target creature. It gains indestructible until end of turn. Minus two, whenever one or more non-token creatures attack this turn, create that many 1-1 white soldier creature tokens that are tapped and attacking. Minus six, you get an emblem at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token, then put a 1-1 counter on each creature you control, and it starts with loyalty three. And although it looks a little unassuming, I think, the reason it caught my eye is because Pioneer has a deck that both cares about white pips and plus one, plus one counters. And I wonder if this could be an additional white walker for the mono-white devotion Heliod strategy as a new way to maybe set up like some powerful Heliod or walking ballista plays. 
Yeah, that's an option. I think maybe I I feel like looking at this and then looking at getting into the trials. It's like I, I in that deck I probably would rather have this quite frequently than getting the trials unless I'm playing against inverter. And you will be. Yeah, yeah, you will be given with our meta breakdown, but I, I can see that being true. I mean, it makes your random dorks that you have to play like Knight of the White Orchid bigger and blah, blah, blah. I just think this doesn't do enough by itself. Like it doesn't interact with the board. It doesn't protect itself. It requires a board state to use like the minus two and and the plus one. Um, like just a quick. Uh, yeah, but look, I mean, you you play this on turn three and then play play walking ballista for two on turn four and then you have enough then you plus this and then you activate heliod i mean it does get that it does fit into that web pretty well i think yeah i mean i think only in maybe in a high synergy situation like that sure and i know that's kind of why stan brought it up but compare this like nissa voice of zendikar a three mana Mm -hmm. army in a can who's like you know her plus creates creates creatures that stink and then her minus turns those creatures into something useful and that has synergy with other green decks as well, like the Hardened Scales decks. And I don't even think she's uh, an auto-include in that. So I don't know. I think that I, I don't think that this is useless, but I think it's a high synergy Planeswalker because it doesn't do a lot by itself. So Dave mentions Gideon of the Trial, though. I saw this replacing Gideon Blackblade, which comes and goes from that deck. Not really a staple, but I guess my question is, doesn't this seem just better than Blackblade? for that strategy i never played black blade when we were testing that so i can't really say black blade's a creature this is not a creature you know what i mean like this doesn't do anything by itself like black blade impacts the board in that it's a it's a creature on the board yeah the only thing is it sets you up for a turn four infinite combo in a way that black blade i don't think does I don't even know the text on Gideon Blackblade off the top of my head. I just know it's like a decent creature. <laughs> well, the static abilities is make, makes it a creature. It's, it synergizes well with other creatures, and it's a creature itself, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a it's an interesting planeswalker. It's not too drastically different than a lot of the Ajani's. That's what I first thought when I read this. I was like, oh, they made it. They they took a Johnny and put it on a different character. Okay. Can we talk about Chandra for a second, like really fast? As long as we're talking about walkers, why not? Yeah, walkers. Chandra, Heart of Fire, three generic, red, red, plus one, discard your hand, then exile the top three cards of your library until end of turn, you may play cards exiled this way. Another plus one, Chandra, Heart of Fire deals two damage to any target. I'm not going to read the nine, the minus nine ultimate because (laughs) it is too many words. Loyalty, five. This plus one, both of these plus ones are very good, right? Like plussing to shock something I think is good in Pioneer. Plussing to draw three cards that where you can play the lands off of those draws is also very good. Um, I I think that it could fit into like a reddish kind of big deck. Seems like a really good card to yeah, me. Yeah, that plus one to discard your hand, I think, is better than it first looks. And we talked to Jack the Judge in the Slack today who confirmed that it actually kind of works like a reservoir. So if this Chandra sticks around and you use that plus one multiple times, you can play the cards that you exiled in previous turns if it was exiled with the same Chandra. Oh, so it's like a Karn situation where you want to keep those exiled cards a little bit separate type thing. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like one of the saving graces about this walker. Yeah, because my initial reaction is that I feel like this this is overcosted. Like, Like, I feel like... 
what you get out of it at five is is just not quite there. Like light up the stage gets you those cards until the end of your next turn. This is just until the end of your turn. Right. The a, a shock for the plus, sure, a shock is good, but what do you shock? I mean, you're shocking something at, at, at on turn five. I'd almost rather have it be like a minus two for a bolt rather than a plus one for a shock. Like something that sort of feels in between Chandra Torch of Defiance minus three and the plus one here. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can uh, play some hollow ones with I me. Mean, I do like <laughs> hollow ones. Just kidding. One. Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that some people are maybe... I mean, I think the key for me here is that you can play a land off of it, which helps that plus one be a lot better. Exactly, because you can't do that with Chandra Torch. Correct. Yeah, you just yeah. hit somebody for two. So I think this could be a good, like, powerful card. Although there, you know, there is that Chandra 6 from last year's M core set that's really good as well, the one that's uncounterable and does damage. So it's possible that if you're in a deck that's going big on a red plan, you're you're just going to that one instead. But you know, the card drawing engine's always attractive to me. The discard is maybe synergistic with some stuff. Arclight Phoenix, who knows, something like that. Stan, hearing you talk about like the fact that you can sort of make a pile of cards that if Chandra sticks around and add her loyalty and that being a plus, you're going to have a lot of card selection, which is certainly appealing. I think that it's, that's better than I initially anticipated. I think it's, I think this will see some kind of play, um, probably not in modern, but I think it has some play in like probably either, either a deck that I'm not thinking about in modern, like just sort of a bigger deck that runs red or like one of our mid rangey red decks in pioneer. I think it has some chops. I think if it sees modern play, maybe it's in a deck like mono red prison, possibly as a way to like accrue card advantage as well as maybe do damage. Yeah. That'll get you to your finishers that you need. You know, you're not just relying on the yeah. top of your deck. Also, Ponza will sometimes run Luca without the combo as just a way to, again, generate card advantage. Um, and maybe this is better than Luca in that role. I think it's better than the non-combo one. Yeah, if you're not doing sneak attack with Luca, I think you probably... Here's the other thing, Dave. You didn't read the ultimate, but I actually think the ultimate is noteworthy with its plus one shock effect. So the ultimate is minus nine. You have to shock four times to get there. So you do eight damage. And then with the ultimate, you can get any number of red instants in your library or graveyard. If you run exactly four lightning bolts and you shock upstairs until you can minus nine and grab the lightning bolts, that's 20 damage. Because she'll grab red instants or sorceries and she'll make six red mana. So you get the mana to cast those bolts. Well, tell me how the elves of magical Christmas land enjoy their winter holiday stan i think i think you're probably right if this goes in a big red deck then maybe we're talking about grinding up to the ultimate i could see it shane i celebrate hanukkah and you know that <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> all right so i'm going to talk about a card that i was initially pretty cold on and now i'm warming up to it specifically in pioneer and that is elder garagroth it's a three gg for a beast creature six six it has vigilance Reach and Trample. Three good keywords. Whenever Elder Garagroth attacks or blocks, choose one, make a 3-3 green beast creature token, you gain three life, or draw a card. So I think this is initially a card you can overrate or perhaps underrate because it's a five-cost green beater. It has no ETB, but it has a lot of words. So you're like, okay, cool. And initially I was like, well, 
Here's another big green creature that does some stuff that you have to untap with it. You have to attack with it. But I'm coming around to it as like a role player and pioneer. I don't think it's great, but I do think it's useful in green, like what I would maybe call like a mid-range or a quote-unquote control card or control deck because it's a really great stall piece versus smaller aggressive decks because you get the effect when it blocks, right? And this thing blocks. It has vigilance, even if you can't attack with it, and it has reach so it can block things in the air, and it's a 6-6. You say it blocks, but I don't think this creature is ever blocking because who would attack into it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they better have a combat trick, but what's it costs 5, so you really better be playing this ahead of curve, and guess what? It's in green, so you're probably going to be playing it ahead of curve. So something that can ramp it out a turn too early, you stymie the opponent's attacks. You don't even, you know, you're not just blocking, you're getting a lot of value. They're like, well, like if I attack into this, if I, unless I have a combat trick or I have a spell to finish this off, my opponent's making another creature on the board. They're gaining life. They're, they can draw a card. Those are all things you don't want your opponent to be doing. And you know, red, something like red deck wins, a red aggro deck already has a little bit of a problem just getting through an arboreal grazer without pointing some burn at that grazer instead of at the opponent's face. And so facing this thing down is going to be a real chore. I mean, you've faced down probably something like a, a lovestruck beast, right? And even if that's not attacking, just a 5-5 five, five blocker is a total pain in the butt to try to get through. If your life total is decent, you can start making 3-3s three to take back the board or get other blockers in the way, or you can draw some cards, get into those haymakers that get your board advantage back in your favor. If your life total is low, you can start gaining life, and you're likely going to have some decent opportunities to swing with this thing because you have vigilance to retain the blocking on the back end. Uh, once you turn the corner, you have the board state back in your favor. It's a big threat because it's trampling over smaller things. I have a hard time seeing this in the main because where does it fit in? Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that you sort of put in your, in your five drop slot into like a black green aggro deck or a mono green aggro deck, because the cards in, in those decks are true finishers. Like, you know, they're, they're pumpers, they're making, they're generating, um, more value than I think this card does immediately, but something like Simic Ramp and Pioneer, Maybe this is something that could have some room there, but what are you removing? Like World Breaker, Cavalier of Thorns at like similar CMCs, and I'm not so sure on that. So I see it more as like a as a really good piece against creature aggro decks where you just generate so much value off it that they can't execute their game plan against you. What do you all think? I think that is a smart and reasoned take about what this hype card is good for, right? I mean, this card has so much text on it. All I can think about is pulling one of these in sealed deck and just being like, ha ha, you know, but, um, you know, this is a card that, yeah, you want to bring in against red decks basically because they can't do anything about it and you get an absurd amount of stuff off of it. And I, I think that's a good way to go. Like this, this card against Ponza is like any kind of deck in that space is pretty wild. I like how you pointed out that it's probably a sideboard card since it's doing kind of a bad impression of Obstinate Bayloth and Thrag Tusk, mm -hmm. which A, I don't think those cards are ever going to see Pioneer at this point, but B, those are often sideboard cards in the decks that play them in Modern. And I feel mm -hmm. like 
since it kind of has similar effects on the games if like the game if if you untap with it essentially i can kind of see it like literally living in the same zone as those cards do as well yeah this card to me reads buy me time yeah for sure answer this or i'm gonna take over speaking of time let's move along i want to talk about this spell Village Rights, that's the translated version. I think that's a pretty direct translation. It's an instant speed, single black mana spell. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature. And the effect is, draw two cards. So, this card has already existed in Magic for one and a black. Yeah, it's called Alter's Reap. Yeah, that was in what, Zendikar? Uh, It is in Innistrad, originally. This card exists elsewhere and maybe some ccgs you've played uh in one i've been playing legends of runeterra this is glimpse beyond but it costs you two mana and you kill one of your units to draw two right this card sees plenty of play in sacrifice energy go wide sort of tokeny style decks and you're generating card advantage off some creature you no longer need um tokens Creatures that recur from the graveyard, creatures that do something when they die, these are all great things to use with village rights. Like this costs one mana and it's an instant, right? So it gives you one, it's a cheap mana cost, which gives you a lot of options to use your mana in interesting ways. And it gives you interesting opportunities to do things like chump block and then generate value off of that creature that you're no longer gonna need anyway. You can generate unexpected blockers. If like say a creature you have has some uh, death effect and so on, things like that. What I also like is it says sacrifice. So it doesn't give the opponent a chance to interact with like some target you're specifying. It just sort of happens as a cost of the spell. So it's not like, um, you know, deal two damage to target creature you control to, you know, draw two cards or something like that. It's just, it's just a, a, an instant, instant effect that can't be interacted with. And that's certainly powerful as well. I think this sees play in some way in a, in a lot of formats, you know, even popper, cause it's a common, it's just, it's something. Yeah. Popper seems yeah. like a shoe in popper loves, loves cheap divinations. Yeah. So it's, I mean, drawing two cards by killing, let's, let's say you're playing mono black aggro, right? And, at some point, you're like, I need to get to my my bigger cards. This 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 uh, two one that regenerates, I can just kill it now. Well, let's say let's say I, t- I attack I attack with my uh, with my bloodsoak champion and my gutter bones. Uh, bloodsoak champion gets chump blocked. I kill my bloodsoak champion. I draw two cards off it for one mana, and then I just recur bloodsoak champion. Sounds okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's what I think about this card. I don't know for sure if this card is going to see play. But I can tell you that the likelihood is more like the difference between two and one mana is more than it looks like. It's a vast gap between those two mana costs. And so if, you know, uh, if Alter's Reap was X percent likely to be played, this is far more likely to be played than two times X percent. (laughs) It's maybe three or four times X percent more likely to be played because it's one CMC. And we know there's so many synergies with, um, you know, cards hitting the graveyard with recursion decks, uh, with aristocrat style decks that there's just inherent synergy. And people have already even been talking about this as just like something like a veil of summer 
where maybe it's in your sideboard against removal decks. And they point a piece of removal at your creature. You cast Village Rights on it. You draw two cards um, just to, to stymie the removal spell. And that's a good piece of value for you. I don't know if it's quite that good. I think it's going to be more a player in synergy type decks where you're getting additional value off of the creature dying or that you can recur that creature. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. I think it definitely has play at one mana. Yeah. I mean, think about something super wild. Okay. You throw one or two of these in a kind of like Grixis Snapcaster deck in modern. And it's like, you just play Snapcaster, you know, you, you play it earlier, sacrifice something, and then you can Snapcaster and bring it back and sacrifice the Snapcaster to the trigger to bring it in and draw two cards. Like, there's a lot of weird kind of things that might come up because it's cheap that make this possible and desirable to want to yeah. use. I, I, I kind of like it comboing off with Stitcher Supplier as like a card you're trying to kill sure. and they're both one mana mm. spells. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's good. One of the decks that was missing from the weekend's Pioneer results was these black-white Rally the Ancestor strategies. Um, and those were decks that were propped up by Luris. I could see that deck testing something like this too. Because again, like we actively want to get cards and creatures into the graveyard and this helps dig towards your payoffs and combo pieces. Yeah. It's a lot better than Alter's Reap. That's 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 the end. Dave, <laughs> the end. Can we talk about another black instant spell, please? Yes. Let's talk about the card that I believe is called Plunge. <laughs> Sploosh. I don't know. That that's what it is on on uh the spoiler sites right now. It is called um Plunge. It's a one generic, one black. It's an instant, and it says destroy target planeswalker or creature with converted mana cost less than or equal to three this card is good right yes stands i'm, unconvinced. Not, I'm not interesting well let's talk about how three cmc uh, lines sure. up with modern <laughs> yep. and pioneer because i took some notes we have basri here they are the royal scions <laughs> dovin the three mana N- dovin nissa bon. voice of zendikar <laughs> sure so anyway, let's like take a look at creatures first. Three CMC is kind of the high end for creature ranges in Modern and Pioneer, unless it's specialized or you're ramping to them, right? So if you look at the top 50 creature cards played in Modern and Pioneer on Goldfish right now, in Modern, only 13 of the cards on that list are above three converted mana costs. And in Pioneer, it's 15 are above that. So it's a little under a third in Pioneer and a little above a quarter in Modern that are outside of the range. And a lot of cases, those are cards that are like one-offs where it's like Worm Coil Engine or, uh, you know, Ulamog and things like that where you're like, yeah, I'm not going to play this card in against Tron. Like it's going to come out when, when I'm playing Tron or it's never going to come in against Tron. But there's a lot of targets available for this card. Go on. Stan. And then, of course, the twist here is that this is instant speed to CMC Planeswalker removal, which we don't really have that much of right now. It's harder to look up the top kind of 10 Planeswalker lists in our two formats. But let's talk about the the really powerful, really annoying Planeswalkers that are present both in Pioneer and Modern. In Pioneer, you're really talking a lot about three mana cost to fairy and Narset. In modern, 
there's things like Liliana the Veil, Renan Six, Pioneer Heads getting into the trials, you know, Stan just rattled off three other <laughs> random planeswalkers that were three mana cost. There's a lot of three mana cost planeswalkers at this point. Not a lot of twos, but there are a good number of threes. It doesn't kill, kill a lot of good ones, of course. It doesn't kill Luca. It doesn't kill Te- Teferi 5. It doesn't kill Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, but I still think that this is a big overlap between creature removal and planeswalker removal at instant speed for cheap. Yeah. So here's here's what I doubt. First, it's, I think, strictly worse than Abrupt Decay. I would just always play it. Well, except for the fact that it costs black mana instead of green black mana. Right, but who would play this if not for, like, a black-based mid-range strategy? And I think, like, this would just need to go into decks that can't play Abrupt Decay. But how good are those decks? Like, is this going to be the deck that makes blue-black better suddenly? Is this going to make red-black better suddenly? I think uh, Demir Inverter might raise its eyebrow at this over a hero's downfall. I think that mono black aggro will look at this over, uh, what's that one? Noxious, whatever the one that was in noxious grasp that was in M 20. Um, I, the, the big question here is like, how much better is having access this to this at two mana than uh hero's downfall at three mana, or there's that red, that Rakdos card from on grass rampage or whatever. No, there's the one that there's one that is. I mean, Angroth's Rampage definitely fits into this picture as well. But there's the, the one that is red, black, black that kills a creature or a planeswalker mm-hmm. at instant speed. All right, I'm convinced. Basically, any deck that can't run Abrupt Decay will probably just want to run this instead. Problem solved. But, I just like, let's compare this to Heartless Act, though, right? Like, so I I don't see Mono Black Aggro playing this over Heartless Act primarily because it wants to have a flexible removal spell that can hit larger creatures that might be stopping it from getting its game plan done. Like a Kalidus across the board is what you do not want to see, right? So uh, this can't hit that. And maybe it's a sideboard card when someone's playing some of these low-to-the-ground planeswalkers, or you know that you're going to have a number of targets for it, something like that, where you sort of round out your removal suite. I think that different decks are going to use it in different ways. Yeah, this is a card that is a house against prowess on the one hand, and then out of the sideboard, and then on the other hand is good against Jeskai fires because you can bring it in and kill Teferi and um, and Narset if you want to to keep them from digging for stuff and Gideon. So I think it's one of those ones where it's a flexible sideboard card that is cheap, and I, that's why I think it's going to be pretty good. Now, my question to you all is, is this card the kind of planeswalker removal that people have been clamoring for it's two cmc planeswalker removal it's not a rare it's trades up in mana cost though not that much i mean is this the kind of creative answer we want to see to take care of problematic planeswalkers or is there other stuff that we need to be looking at i don't know i think well i think it remains to be seen i think that this card has play and i think it it depends entirely on the metagame that's that's my very insightful, original, never before heard take. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Love if it. anything, it may be a little bit better suited for Pioneer than for Modern. But I guess we'll see how good Blue Black Fairies gets once this is printed or this comes out. Stan, can we talk about your dragon, please? No, your, your pet dragon. No, please. I, I think we 
we just spent an hour and 45 minutes not talking about containment priest. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it's that great. I don't think it's that great. <laughs> this is all staying in. All right, yeah, just I, get I, into I, I'm going to insist we talk about containment priest. I was going to put this in my quick hit section. Oh, oh no, we're going to talk about this for 20 minutes. We're going long. Containment priest for the non-commander players is one in a white for a human cleric with flash. It is a 2-2 that reads... If a non-token creature would enter the battlefield and it was not cast, exile it instead. This was kind of like an early favorite to appear in Modern Horizons. Before Modern Horizons was fully spoiled, people thought it could be a good answer to some of the Faithless looting decks that were popular at that time. Is it Phoenix and Dredge in particular? Hollow One was, was around as well. But we finally got it. In a standard, aka premiere set, as Watsi calls them now. And the reason I think it's a big deal is because it deals with a lot of tricky but relevant cards that yeah. cheat creatures into play. For sure. Aether Vile, Collected Company, Court of Calling, Through the Breach, anything that flickers. So, like the Soul Herder decks, gonna hate to see this. Dredge, definitely going to hate to see this. Even things like Neoform can can shut off uh, an early Gristlebrand out of out of the Neoform deck. Sure, all good things. So, like, what, what what do people think about when they see this card? Like, Death and Taxes, Eldrazi and Taxes, going to be bumped up a tier or something like that? Obviously, going into human sideboards. Uh, I mean, obvious with, with the Aether Vial interaction is not great. With Containment Priest. Yeah, since it but is both of you. Doesn't humans take Aether Vial out sometimes? I mean, rarely. It's not like it's not something you want to do because it's a primary mana advantage card for you. I love this Devil's Advocate stand <laughs> I get to see week after week. <laughs> Evil grin. I, I just feel like this is a little bit late to the party. Like, it's it would have been a big hurt against, like, Phoenix, Dredge at its peak, Soul Herder decks when those were around. Like, our, our Modern Horizons meta, right? And then we get stuff now, like Uro and Kroxa, that get cast from your graveyard. We get, we get, and even, like, classic cards like Conflagrate in Dredge gets cast from your graveyard, gets around that Containment Priest restriction, so you can just keep dredging. And then get to your conflagrate and just oh, see you later, containment priest. And oh, here's my creatures. So, I mean, certainly it's mildly annoying, but you know, it's not, I don't think containment priest is going to be the answer that makes Uro somehow worse against these aggressive creature decks that it already, you know, it already is that. Yeah. I just think this is an excellent card to have available in, in all of these metagames. And that's it. It's, it's important, but you, you don't have to play this out of a hate bearer deck like if you you know you could play it out of plenty of other decks well, I, I sort of broadly mean like it's another one in a white you know hate piece that they print in every set now <laughs> yeah i'm glad it's here i mean i i think i was hyped for it to be in modern horizons and it wasn't and now it feels a little bit after the fact but i'm sure it's going to have some utility I think I heard this on Faithless Brewing a week or two ago where someone somewhere revealed that General Kudro was designed to answer Faithless looting decks. <laughs> and I wonder if this is something similar that maybe R&D didn't anticipate Faithless looting to be gone and they thought that this could be a good way to kind of nerf some of those graveyard strategies. Maybe not an immediate meta-defining sideboard piece, 
uh, probably, I mean, almost certainly not a main deck card in any deck, but I think Dave summed it up nicely. Like the fact that we have this available to us now is going to be a really good safety valve for whatever might be around the corner. All right, let's talk about some other cards more quickly. All right, can we talk about Gadrick the Crown Scourge? Oh, yeah. We finally got the three mana dragon that our former co-host at Colhan had dreamt of for so long. Gadrak, two and a red for a flying legendary dragon. It's a 5-4. Gadrak cannot attack unless you control four or more artifacts. But at the beginning of your end step, you may create, or you have to create a treasure token for each non-token creature that died this turn. And a treasure is a tap, sacrifice this artifact, add one mana of any color. So when I saw this, I thought this is going to be great in something like Mono Red Prison, or maybe even Scred style decks that are playing Mindstone, that are playing Chalice of the Void. Maybe they're incentivized to start playing like Eggs uh, and main deck Relic of Progenitus to set this up. Bobble, I mean, maybe Mox Amber, maybe. Especially in Mono Red Prison, since that does have a fair share of legendaries. I feel like this is like a solid finisher that's not hard to enable in the right strategy. It's one of those things too, like you're playing a card in the Great Creator deck, you're tutoring up artifacts, you probably already have some artifacts main deck, and anything that you kill with your burn or other removal that you might have around, like your Chandra, uh, down ticks... Uh, then you're just going to be able to make some tokens and eventually be able to swing with this thing. Like either you're doing it fairly soon or it's sitting there. It's, it's blocking, you know, it, 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 it's not just, it's not inert. It's a five, four blocker in the air for three. And, you know, like I mentioned, love struck beast earlier in the episode, uh, love struck beast that can't attack, but still blocks still sucks to see on the other side of the battlefield sometimes. Yeah, especially in Pioneer. So I know we've been talking about it in, in Modern, but the, there's a lot of creature blocking that happens in Pioneer at different times in the metagame. You know, if it's 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 Inverter and Lotus Breach at the top, maybe not. But um, I think this is a cool card. It makes that three-mana Sarkon perhaps a little bit better because now you have like a new cheap dragon to, to tick up for. I, I think it's going to appear in like one or two strategies that are capable to support this. Yeah, it's it's I want to say you almost have to have like Karn the Great Creator. That's probably too much of a stretch, but I can definitely see prisony Karn decks that you're able to tutor up one or two artifacts from your sideboard. You're playing maybe some mana ramp, like you mentioned, Stan. You might have a Mishra's Bauble, you might have a Mindstone, you might have a a clue token. You know, there's there's so many ways that artifacts could create. You might have some food. You know, there's there's so many ways that 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 artifact, yeah, the you know artifact food. It's still so weird um, that this is going to be enabled more often than not. I think if it's built around. Yep. All right. What else we got? Let's talk about another weird card. How about Azusa? Now in Pioneer, you can play two initial lands on each of your turns. Two and a green for a one-two human monk, legendary. Okay. Modern staple because of Amulet of Vigor, right? So Amulet lets you bring in the same untapped Karoo bounce land. Three times, you get a primeval titan that turn, right? That's the that's the main reason that Azusa gets played. In Pioneer, you don't have that interaction. And so your ramp is limited by having those extra lands drawn to get them into play, right? So I'm kind of I'm unsure if Azusa is gonna be impactful uh beyond her price points going down. 
in Pioneer at least. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I think is really interesting about Azusa is just that it uh, now means that there's an eight pack of creature cards that you can play extra lands with available in Pioneer between it and Dryad of the Elysian Grove. I mean, it's in standard too, for what it's worth. But now if there's any kind of land strategies that emerge as as payoffs in Pioneer uh, that don't have sacrifice effects when they come into play, like Lotus Field does, um, you do have a chance to kind of build a deck where you get to play a bunch of extra lands to get there. Um, so I feel like it's just something worth putting a pin in and remembering is there because it's a powerful engine. I think a really good card that we haven't talked about yet um, is Vito Thorn of the Dusk Rose. It was one of the earlier spoilers. I think people have already kind of forgotten about it. Two and a black legendary vampire cleric for a one three. Whenever you gain life, target opponent loses that much life. And then uh, activated ability three black black creatures you control gain lifelink until end of turn. This seems good. It's a three mana sanguine, sanguine, sanguine bond, which costs five for an enchantment that does the same thing. It, it has slightly different templating than we usually see on something like that. And the, tr- the triggered effect is typically something like you gain life and your opponent loses one life. So like even a giant life gain effect would only make the opponent like get hit one, ping them. But with like veto out, something like Green Merchant of Asphodel would cause this huge life gain swing. In your favor, right? Like, let's say you had you know seven uh, devotion. You're you're draining them seven. You're gaining seven, and therefore you're draining them seven again. So fourteen life loss. Do you think for your Mono opponent. Black and Pioneer can can make room for this? Because this is a main deck card, right? In, in well, in tr- whatever deck ends up running it. I think this is a build around card. I don't think Mono Black is because I don't think you're gaining enough life in Mono Black. I think this is like an Orzov life gain deck mm-hmm. where you're attempting to abuse this card i don't know if like great merchant is the killer app with this i think there's just so many ways for especially white cards to be gaining life and then a little bit of splash into black for some other synergy cards i think that this card is going to be part of not necessarily tier one combos but certainly people can build around this and, and build some decks that are going to blow you out way more likely in pioneer than modern like those kind of shenanigans don't really float in in modern. I mean, this is going to be a bunch of people's super hype uh, commander for sure, because the old sanguine, oh, yeah. sanguine bond combo is pretty, pretty exciting. And people love that combo in EDH at different points in time, but love it. Can we talk about a card that I would like to talk about? Chandra's Incinerator, five and a red. Creature elemental, this spell costs X less to cast, where X is the total amount of non-combat damage dealt to your opponents this turn. Trample, whenever a source you control deals non-combat damage to an opponent, the incinerator deals that much damage to target creature planeswalker that player controls. 6-6. Six, six. So you can get this out on turn two in modern. Turn one, rift bolt. Turn two, play a land. Bolt opponent or, or lava spike them. Uh, the Rift Bolt resolves, you've dealt six damage, so you can now cast this for one mana. And I think that turn two or maybe turn three is kind of the ceiling on this card that everyone is really interested in. Yep. Yeah, but it's also like the worst top deck you could draw besides like Autocathon Worm or something like that, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing with this card? Like, it's, it's, let's, we gotta look at the floor as well as the ceiling, right? I think the floor is like subterranean. Yeah, I, I really want to love this card, but I kind of feel like it's a no-go for me as well. 
I mean, I, I guess, I guess there's a chance that you could set yourself up so that you're like, I'm going to play when I have Chandra's incinerator to, uh, to sculpt my game plan around getting it out early. So I'm just going to wait to play my burn spells or something like that. But, um, yeah, it's a little less exciting than when I first read it. And I was like, this is sweet. Maybe this is like a kind of replacement for like a, uh, Arclight Phoenix kind of effect kind of card. You know what I mean? Like there's a way to break this. Yeah. The Shane, I totally agree with you. And I think that's likely to be the outcome. The only counterpoint I have is that burn doesn't really want to live off the top of its deck, right? Like burn wants to close out by like turn four or five. So what really matters is that you have a good opening hand. Yeah. I mean, I can see it being the case where it's like, yeah, you want to multi this and then you have it. But I think one of the burn strengths is also its consistency. And that's because living off the top of the deck is consistent where you have 19 or 20 lands and you know that a full third of your deck is going to probably do some damage in some way, shape or form. Right. So I just, I just don't see this fitting into the core philosophy of burn, at least as, as I see it, which is like, I want my cards to always do X number of damage or close to X number of damage. And I can rely on that. So it's like, what, what upside are you getting over another card? Are you like, are you shaving off a quarter turn potentially? It's like, I just don't know exactly. Yeah. I I think if the cease play, it probably just won't be in the burn that we know of it'll kind of be a, a a different aggressive red deck that has a bunch of burn spells no doubt but maybe it's not like the goblin guide monastery swift beer version of burn maybe not even the boros charm version maybe it's just like a new mono red card i want i mean i'm 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 all for good cards i don't want cards to be bad i just don't know if this is gonna be good enough to make it into burn strategies yeah i mean the the flavor text is or not flavor text but like trinket text is the stuff that's hard where it's like yeah it makes your lightning bolt still do like extra stuff but what it really is is like a one mana six six trample that's what we want it to be and so it's like how do we how do we get it in a deck where that makes sense is that a shell that exists you're gonna have to tune in next week to find out yeah, we had such a long breakdown. I mean, think there's some stragglers yeah, we can talk next about next week. week, too. Unless next week is crazy and there's like 20 more cards we got to discuss. Let's just do it all. We'll do the whole the whole uh, episode on more spoilers. Full set review of Corset 2021. That does wrap up this week's show. Next week, we'll talk new cards, reprints. Maybe instead of having a breakdown that's twice as long, we'll do one that's half as long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're so good at doing that, Stan. <laughs> tournaments happened if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com if you'd like to support the show you can join our patreon we're joining at any tier it gets you access to our super secret slack channel Find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the show. You can sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and core set now.